in this episode with Angie Warren-Clark. I do have to say though, you know, um, and I've thought long and hard about how I talk about this because, you know, I love my family and I have the utmost respect for the, the work that my family has done to change, um, and particularly my dad. His kids got beaten, and I was one of those kids. So we didn't just get the occasional smack, we got beaten. And so for me, at about age seven, I remember this moment where I was like, I will never do that to my children. I will never be in that circumstance where I am doing that to my children. And there was a little moment then, I think, where I realised that this was wrong and I needed to fight against it with all my will and all my being. So, yeah, that was that was kind of... Uh, so that was about seven and... Um, damn it, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to be a family court lawyer and I'm going to work in the field of family violence because that's what this woman has done and she's my hero. So Angie, thank you for being here today. Appreciate you taking time out from your busy schedule um, to be interviewed. Um, before we get into the details of your um, life, work and, and legacy, I thought maybe I could ask you just to kind of summarise what, you know, your perspective, what you believe is your life's work. Oh, tricky question to start with. Just a, just a small question. Oh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I think possibly my life's work is around the elimination of family and sexual violence. And I, basically that's probably because it's the work that gives me the most enjoyment and satisfaction and purpose. So I think that's possibly it. There are other aspects as well around the environment and things like that, but primarily my work is in that space. Great. Thank you for that. All right. Well, as I say, we'll probably get into a bit more detail about that when we when we cover the work aspect, which is quite a big piece for everybody, right? Sure. Uh, we all have to work. Um, but th thinking about, and maybe there might be some uh, correlation between what you just said and, and something that's maybe triggered that earlier in your life, I'm not sure, but can you give me some context around who um, Angie is, where you've come from, you know, what your childhood was like. So if we go way back to right. Angie as a child, where did you grow up? What was life like? Yep, sure. Who were you as a character? Um, okay. 
you know, uh, politicians love to talk about themselves, so you may <laughs> you may regret this. Um, <laughs> so I was born in Murapara, um, but predominantly grew up in Northland. Uh, my parents moved up in Northland with us. I think I was four, um, and uh, they were in the forestry industry, um, and so they moved up to Northland for that. And um, so I grew up in some very small communities, um, Mangamuka, um, Horeki, a place called Utikura, and a little place called Okaiho, which is where I did most of my growing up. Pretty rural community, probably about, I don't know, uh, 25 minutes from Kirikiri or Kaikaui, kind of very close to beaches. A um, lot of you know, farm and forestry was really what we did as a family. And so, um, you know, small community but pretty close-knit. Um, lots of good things about the rural community that I grew up in. Um, but also, you know, I was, well, I was born in 71. So in 1971 um, and in the 70s when I was growing, you know, as a, as a young, very little person, um, being a child in that, that time was kind of difficult difficult um, or more difficult than I guess it is today and that one of the things that happened is kids got beaten and I was one of those kids so we didn't just get the occasional smack we got beaten and so for me at about age seven I remember this moment where I was like I will never do that to my children I will never be in that circumstance where I am doing that to my children. And there was a little moment then, I think, where I realised that this was wrong and I needed to fight against it with all my will and all my being. So, yeah, that was that was kind of... Uh, so that was about seven. And, um, and don't get me wrong... I, I had tremendous opportunity in my household, in my family. I had all sorts of good things happen, but we also had family violence. And so that shaped the person I am today very much, I think. Um, and I guess, really, um, gave me the determination to never see that happen to another child or another family. Uh, and part of that is realising that actually in order to move from, from being a victim to a survivor of violence, you really have to do some serious work and you need to kind of manage to do things in a way that actually supports you growing and changing. And so that's why I say a lot of my life's work has been around the family violence space. Yeah. Um, I do have to say, though, you know, um, and I've thought long and hard about how I talk about this because, you know, I love my family and I have the utmost respect for the, the work that my family has done to change, um, and particularly my dad. Um, he was a man of his time, an incredibly hard worker. Like, the man would, he'd be up at 5.30 in the morning and he would be still running a bu his business at 10.30 at night. He went all day, every day, seven days a week, 
ran farm, ran a really successful forestry industry business, um, but a man of his time. In his views, uh, his what he'd learned as a child was that you 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 could hurt the the people you loved in order to control them, and that is something that he's learned is not right now. Um, and you know, and people judge so much. They judge around, oh, how could you ever do that to your children or how could you ever do that to your wife? But actually, it's part of our culture and we all need to stop with the judgy pants and get on with the change. Um, and that's one thing I'm tremendously proud about my dad is that he has learned another way and that's really important. So I don't want this um, conversation to be about how terrible he was. It's more about the transformation that I've seen in my own family and also the transformation that I believe should happen in this country. And yeah, so that's, I guess, um, that's part of it. But I guess the other, the other part is I had a normal upbringing as a kid. You know, we rode our bikes and cruised around and back then, um, you know, you had to be home before dark. That was pretty much it. No cell phones. You know, I had a, a Rally 20 bush bike. No gears. Um, you know, we just we just had we just had a great time as country kids. You know, ealing and doing stuff. And um, and I guess the other part was my incredibly um, privileged childhood with my best friend and her family uh, fishing and um, doing all things to do with the sea as well. So, you know, fishing, diving, sailing, um, surfing, you know, great childhood. Adventurous childhood. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 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 Angie, thank you for sharing what you just shared um, about your um, time as a young person and that family violence. And in particular, I think, you know, immediately you've, you've wrote something for me that, is, a, is an insight. I think ordinarily, and having been someone who's worked in the police many years ago and dealt with um, family violence and violence of all kinds, domestic abuse, um, it's interesting to hear you say, and what you said about uh, not being, having your judgy pants on, I think was the, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the term you used, and you know, seeing your father the way he was, which is a man of his time, and that, you know, those circumstances, and maybe we could delve into that a little bit more, maybe uncover that. I think there's something in that. Um, that this wasn't necessarily just about your father and his particular traits. It was circumstance and the environment in which he'd grown up in. We don't often hear that. Yeah. We don't often pay too much attention to that. And I think it's important to do that in, in understanding why domestic violence happens because if we don't really understand the problem, how can we work out how to fix it? Yeah. It ends up being quite sort of surface level and dealing with symptoms as opposed to dealing with the, the yeah. proper root cause. So are you able to maybe expand on what your thoughts are? Maybe, you know, you've had conversations with your father and with your parents and other yeah. family members about why it was like that at that time. 
Yeah, I think, well, generally, if I can sort of expand it out a bit, so beliefs and values in this country around uh, the role of women and children and men, you know, it is it is a, is a huge area that we need to sort of unpack. Uh, you've probably heard the term uh, toxic masculinity, the, you know, that belief that you have to be uh, constantly in charge and in control and... Um, and making sure that everyone does what you need them to do. Um, ultimately, it's a very empty existence. And I know certainly for my dad, he he grew up in a west coast of the South Island, um, as did my mum. And um, his parents, he was uh, one of those children that was born many years after the his three siblings. So he was born um, late in life for his mum. And they were... They were, um, you know, very, very hardworking people, but they were also, uh, they spent a majority of their time, um, their role was to basically run pubs, so they were publicans. So it was quite a tough, you know, west coast of the South Island, pretty tough environment, a lot of drinking, a lot of kind of... um, I guess really quite um, addictive behaviours and abusive behaviours. Don't get me wrong, my nana and granddad really sold to the earth, but literally uh, a really tough environment to bring a kid in, up in. And I think he was pretty much dragged up a lot of the time. And uh, And that's, you know, how do you learn to be a good parent when your parents are absent? Uh, and I think that that's, I think that that's one of the things that I've come to realise that, despite my dad not having a constant in his life to help raise him, he did his very best for us, and he was certainly a constant in our lives. He was always there for us, um, and so you see that kind of shift of generations, because I know that. Um, you know, one of the things that he always said to us was, it doesn't matter what you do as long as um, if you need help, you let us know and we'll be there. And that to me was, you know, tremendous comfort, particularly when you're making terrible mistakes as a teenager or whatever, you know, a tremendous comfort to know that there's, you know, someone there or parents there to always, they won't necessarily agree with you, but they're there. And so, yeah, part of that, I guess, part of that culture, heavy drinking, um, you know, um, absent parent, uh, raising yourself, you know, uh, getting yourself off to school if you felt like it, all of those kinds of things were the sorts of things that my dad grew up with. So, um, you know, it's quite hard to say this, and I hope he doesn't, um, doesn't, um, feel too badly about this, but you know, I, I think he had a very neglected childhood. He didn't have the opportunity to probably even um, connect and engage and, and feel loved and supported. So that was part of it. Uh, nevertheless, you make a choice. You make a choice whether or not um, you continue those legacy, that legacy. Mm. And so at a certain point in his life, 
he made the choice not to. Um, but before that, it was yeah. survival, I think. It's interesting you say there, because um, because it, it's you know we are creatures of our environment. You know we become like the I think I can't remember who, whose quote this is now, but we become uh, like the people we you know, hang around with, the five closest people we hang around with. Yeah, sure. Um, so if you're in an environment like your father was. And, and, you know, we can look back now with the benefit of hindsight and say that it was neglect, but he probably didn't, I don't know, I'm putting words in, in your mouth or his mouth, but I just know that in the time we might not feel that, but mm. when we look back we can see it differently, Absolutely. maybe with a different perspective. Yep. But at the time we're growing up with that, it's normal yeah. or feels normal yep. because we don't know any different. Yep. And so to your point about making a choice, I want to come back to you making that choice at mm. seven years of age or however old it was yeah. that you did. But we, we make a conscious choice sometimes. I think most of our choices are unconscious mm. because we tend to just be going with the normalization and the flow of things. And it's not until something triggers us to stop and think, hang on a minute, yeah. that we then start to have a conscious thought process that, that then we can make a decision. Yep. If that makes sense. I agree. So so for you, what was, you know, as a young person that's seven-ish years old, yep. what was it that made you think that you were going to break that circuit, if you like, or that pattern yep. of that type of behavior being normalized within your family? I think it's, for, for me, it was a, a clarifying moment where, um, you know, young people, yeah, kids, Think, see things black and white, justice and justice, good, bad. And I think for me it was uh, a particularly, uh, a, you know, a particularly unfair thing that happened. Um, and I just, I just realised that no, actually, I wasn't to blame for for that. That wasn't that wasn't an appropriate response. That um, it, because I think I'd done something something like I had um, um, back in, back then, gosh, sounds so old, back then, <laughs> if poppies, and the poppies weren't the flat ones like we have now, they were literally a cup poppy and it was um, sort of made with um, uh, sort of some kind of wire or something and they were held together and I, un I unpicked it, pulled it to pieces and I remember getting beaten for that because I was disrespecting the Anzacs. I was like, um, in my head, I suddenly realised, actually, that was a disproportionate response to something that had happened, you know, and it was there, right then it was like, actually, this is completely unfair, this is, I didn't realise that my actions would be taken in that way, and some, you know, I could have been explained to that, actually, that's perspective that dad had but no instead I was punished for some that was and it was completely out of proportion so I, I just remember thinking to myself that I would never treat my children like this um, now I know that many children think that and I know that you know as children we learn not uh, we learn 
how to essentially live with these things. And so I think what happened essentially then was that my trick had to be to continue to believe that. And that was the hardest part of it because you need to continue to believe that actually you're not at fault, you're not to blame. It is not about you. And at seven, you know, that may be a bit clearer. When you're 14 and you're doing bad stuff, getting in trouble, um, it's maybe easier to blame yourself for the consequences of that. Um, And then... As a young woman, learning to break those cycles of behaviour is really important as well. So, you know, you actually see what you, uh, you model what you see around you. So who do you choose to be like? Do you choose to be like the victim? Do you choose to be like the perpetrator? Who, which choice do you go? And in fact, what you really need to do is go down the third track, which is just actually... It's not about violence. It's about living in respectful relationships. So it's about learning, you know, learning how to do something differently from what what you've always known, uh, which is an interesting little space to be in, I guess. Yeah, it is. I, I, I'm keen, if I can, if you're happy to explore a little bit further. You, you clearly remember yeah. that particular incident uh, with the poppy. Yep. How did you feel at that time? How, how did that make you, you know, you, you said a, a response, so I want to come back yeah. to that because I think there's a difference between response and reaction. But before we do yeah. that. Um, I was outraged. Yeah, so talk, talk to me more about yeah, that. I how was did outraged you feel? that the, the, the pure and utter uh, unfairness of that outraged me. I was literally, it was not fair. Uh, and as a consequence, it was kind of like, uh, you know, I'll never do this. But I remember it was almost like I swore an oath to myself or something because the moment became very crystallised and clear for me, and I've never forgotten it. Um, maybe it was adrenaline, I don't know, but certainly um, it was, uh, and that is probably also the time I, d- I was determined that I would never accept being beaten, that I would always fight back. So that was part of it as well. It was well. quite a definitive moment in your life, really. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, and I think as well, people people think, oh, you know, gosh, you, know, you must have been, you know, this or that or, you know, a poor family or whatever. But, you know, I was, I was a really privileged kid. We had, we had whatever we wanted and needed. Um, so it was actually not about being in poverty. It was not about being any of those things. It was actually about the use of violence and control, plain and simple. And you have to be able to see beyond that, some of those myths and stereotypes as well, I think, because, you, know, you know, I'm a Pākehā woman. Um, part, of, part of being... At that time, you know, you didn't talk about family violence. It was very hard. I had no one to talk to. It was very hard to be able to be believed if I was to say anything because I didn't look like the victim. 
it wasn't all of those things that we learn in our myths as well. So I thought that I was on my own to fight this. Yeah. And how did that feel? Um, I was kind of, I'm quite a practical person. I was just get on with it. Because, you know, um, you can, like I say, you can choose to be a victim. You can choose to be a survivor. I wasn't going down without a fight. You're, you, you talked about, there's lots in here, actually. I yeah. just hope that I remember to come back to some of it, because I think some of it is what you're just referring to there, and maybe we'll come back to that when we talk about your work now, or actually also in the past, but um, about how big a problem is this really, you know, and understanding that, because something you said there reminded me of a comment that um, a previous guest said about alcoholism in families, that it's more... Uh, you're more aware of it in the uh, working classes, if you like, if yep. that's the right sort of term, because you can see people um, drinking down at the club and yep. it's it's in your face. But in the, uh, the the sort of middle classes, for instance, it's the drinking's happening at home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's the same for violence because the two are connected. Yep. I've, I've no doubt about that. Um, you know, just, again, based on my work history. Um, so what we don't see, we don't know about, and therefore that's what shapes our thinking about what family yeah. violence is and where it sits within society. So it's a really complex, you know, if it was simple, it would be solved, right? Uh, it's a really uh, complex set of circumstances. So family violence isn't caused by alcoholism. It's exacerbated by alcoholism. Um but you'll have many, many people who are victims of violence or living um, lives of quiet desperation where alcohol isn't a factor and violence is still present. It's easier when you're being disorderly in public to see violence. It's easier when there's a big party on and you know someone is violent for the police to be called, those kinds of things. So that that is the case that it, it always looks like violence and alcohol. I mean, certainly at Refuge we experienced, um, there was always an uptick, rugby season and violence, always an uptick, particularly if the All Blacks lost, you know, um, you would know it well yourself as having been a police officer. It's one of those things that happens. But alcoholism, um, it's like this. If you are going to be violent, if you're a nasty drunk, if you're a violent drunk, then you don't drink. That's the choice you make. You just don't drink. And, and so that's the difference. If people consider that it's okay when they drink, that their, what does that ad say, their mates, their other mates come out, people think that that's okay then actually they are part of and perpetuating um, abuse and blaming the alcohol. When really, they're a violent person who was also violent when they're drunk. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Can I, can I go back, Angie, to, to you, to your father? And I, and I think, you know, again, I'm very cautious and careful not to 
be judgmental, but there's opportunities to learn from here. And it sounds yeah. like your family's learned, you've yep. learned, your family's learned from it. So hopefully you can share some of that learning as well. Um, in respect of your father and his reaction, uh, you call it response. Uh, I, I'm, for me, what you said around explaining why it was disrespectful to pick apart a poppy, yeah. that would be a response. A reaction is uh, a, a little bit more chemical reaction. Less thinking goes into it. It's an automatic response. And we kind of, yeah. and if you've got a violent kind of uh, propensity, then you, you'll lash out. Yeah. So that reaction, is there, have you talked about that particular incident with your father as an example of why he would react that way and what was going on for your dad? You know, I don't think I have. Not that particular one. I have talked about other other instances. Um, you know, I I do refute that it's he's, he, he's out of control in those sort of circumstances. He wasn't. You make a choice, and I know I keep saying this, but literally you yourself would have experienced a time where you were like, man, I'm just going to, and then you've gone, take a breath, whatever it is, and just talk yourself down. Um, and that's the skill that I think a lot of men in particular need to have because it's not okay to just do that stuff. And so I think, yeah, I think it is really, um, it's about, you see, the, the reason you might have stopped using violence or done something, you know, something um, impulsive is because you thought of the consequences of, of doing that. Uh, the beliefs and values of the violent man are that they have a right to because that is how they control their family or their workmates or whoever. That's what they do. Um, and so, it, again, it's those beliefs and values that actually literally say, it's okay to do this because I'm in charge. This is what this I need to keep control of this person and I will hurt them because I've lost control of how they're doing something or thinking or whatever. So really simply for me, you know, family violence is, is, a, is sort of, um, it's broader than just a physical attack as well. So it's um, stopping someone from doing something, making them do something, or punishing them. So it's three parts to that. So it can be you know, financial abuse as well as it could be um, you know, psychological abuse. Um, and I think that that's, that's all part of it as well. Um, yeah, the, the, the thought process, the thought process, which is the difficult part, is actually I have a right to do this because they're my children or that's my wife or those are my employees or that's my, you know, those are the people. I should be able to control them and I will because I don't like what they're doing. So, yeah. Do you think in that moment, though, when there's a reaction happens, that there is actually a thought process that we can measure? You know, like the yeah. – and I'm thinking about the sort of – if it's a pattern, it's behavior, it's a belief, it's in there, yeah. then you are literally reacting to an outside stimulus, which is yeah. 
say, for instance, Angie picking a poppy apart and being disrespectful. Yeah. Um, it's that's why I, I, I kind of make the um, or place the emphasis on reaction rather than yeah. a response. For me, when I teach about leadership and things like yeah. that in my other role, yeah. um, I talk about you know reaction is more automatic response. It's inbuilt yeah. there. It's ingrained there. It's based on experiences. It's knowledge. It's beliefs. Uh, it's values. Yeah. And so, therefore, it just happens. I've done it before, and we, we just react, as opposed to what you're describing. You described it as a skill set, and I completely yeah. agree with that. It's a skill to be able to stop, pause, create a space between that yeah. stimulus and yeah. response, and think about actually think about the stimulus. Think about that child picking apart a poppy. Yeah. Is she aware that that's disrespectful? Um, and then making those considered choices. Yep. That's how I see it. And maybe, maybe I'm I'm wrong, and I'm happy for you to be to tell me that I am. But I, I kind of see a, a difference between the two. And I just wonder how do we get people who've got a propensity for violence as part of their normal kind of mode of operating, yep. their modus operandi. How how do we kind of change and provide that skill set so that they can provide a space yeah. between stimulus and response and then think differently and that this act differently so there has been um, a huge body of work about about changing perpetrator behavior it's a huge body of work and um, essentially it's about first of all accepting that the response is not appropriate so actually acknowledging so we we say there's this the system is called minimizing denying and blaming Oh, you know, I, I I just did that because you know it was disrespect, disrespectful. I um, I did it because she she pulled that poppy apart. It's disrespectful. Um, you know, so it's the minimising, denying, and blaming keeps a person from actually accepting that their response is isn't appropriate. And you know, that's a very simple example of um, you know. A proportionate response would have been, you know, put that down, what's going on, not being punched in the face. So, you know, that's the difference. Um, and I think and I think that that's so that's quite clearly um, you know, when you talk about how people are responded respond to these things. Somewhere in the thought process, it was appropriate to do that and why. And that's the trick of our men in this country learning not to behave in that way. No, that's, mm. um, yeah, so. So what's, so what's going to change, Angie, before they start to, to learn? So, you know, as an example, it's not about me, but I'm, I'm kind of currently just yeah, relating um, this to no. all sorts of different things, yeah, which is yeah, interesting sure. for me. So. And, you know, the purpose of this podcast is for me to learn. I'll be honest with you. So I'm, I'm enjoying this. It's good. So, you know, it's very hard. I do quite a bit of coaching, but it's very hard to coach someone who doesn't want to be coached. Yes. So how does a man who doesn't think that violence is wrong learn to behave differently? You know, um, again, this, there's a lot of work um, done around this. And one of, the, one of the places, so you look at empathy and we're, 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 we're children and babies learn empathy. So that first thousand days is so important. And again, I, I go back to my dad. You know, he was he he was brought up in a space that he probably didn't have that from his mum and dad. He probably only had it from his siblings, and they did their best. So it's about um, first of all um, trying to stop the cycle, 
Um, so not actually being in that space in the first place. But often men, incredibly, you know, men who are incredibly violent, they will go back, like I have, into a time where they knew that it was wrong as a child when it was happening to them and how they swore that they would never do that to their families or they were afraid or... or um, so it's connecting them back to the child and wanting them to... Uh, and them wanting to then never go back there again, you know... Um, you know, we, we paint this picture that violent men are horrible, 100% horrible. They're not. They're just men who need help to change. And I'm purposely saying men, you'll note, because as a feminist woman, this is a gendered issue. So I'm purposely talking. And I don't want to talk about the women who are violent. And don't get me wrong, there are some. But it's actually a gendered issue. You know, about 90% of all violence occurs by men to women or children. So so that's where I'm kind of focusing. Yeah. Um, so men uh, choose to change for, for many reasons, and the trick is to find the motivator. The trick is to find the thing that motivates that person to want to change. Part of it can be, and for some men it can be like, I'm going to lose the status of, of my job or if, if I don't change and they've had other good men or or family members say to them, "If you continue to do this, you will go to we will go to the police, and you will be charged, and we will support your wife or partner in that process. And you need to change, and that's enough. But others, it's right through to you know having a consequence that is so you know the weight of that consequence is so high that they must change. So it really depends on what." Um, what motivates that individual? Now, someone who has been um, brought up in a situation where they have no empathy and can't connect is so much more difficult than someone who has and just chooses because it's a, it's a power thing. So, you know, one of the things that I've done for many years is um, the provision of family violence programs to help support change. Um, and that's, you know, uh, that's a motivation uh, in itself. So some get sent and others will go because they they have to. Uh, their family has said, you have to go, you have to change, or this relationship is over. And others are just like, I am just being nasty and I need some skills. So, yeah, there isn't, there isn't a one-size-fits-all Unfortunately, in this, I gosh, I wish there was because you know that would be the end of family violence. Sure. Um, but yeah, certainly for a lot of men, it's like the consequences of not changing are bigger than the cons are worse than the consequences of staying the same. Literally motivated because they'll be better off by changing. So can I ask you, Angie, on a or from a personal perspective, then, what changed? What was that you talked about motivation and incentive to change? What changed in your family, or changed for your father, and when? Um, I think part of it, part of it was he grew up. You know, like, got to say, you know, young men, you know, full of vim and vigor. He kind of grew up 
um, lost some of that kind of um, the hormonal kind of surges that were probably racing through his brain. And also he was a young dad, right? So, you know, his brain wasn't developed till, you know, 25, 26. So there was that part of it. But the other part was literally um, life. Life started to get in the way. So, um, you know, my parents separated and he began to realise that the world that he'd created, um, he, he needed to do some work to make sure that he kept his family. Um, so, again, I'm sorry if I'm prying too much here, but so was was... Was that a consequence of the the, the violence in the family? Was, no. was it se something separate that caused no, that separation? Yeah. Something separate. Right. Um, yeah. So they 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 had met very young. If um, you know, their first child, mum was eighteen, dad was nineteen. You know, um, and time just kind of you know they they separated as as you know it was basically in their early forties, I think. Yeah. So, so if we can, we've we've delved into your work quite a bit. Or certainly, your perspective on the on the things yep. that you're working on. Um. So, well, but if we can, I'll just dip, nip back a little bit yep, in sure. time, and then we'll come back to that. Sure. Um. So, as you as you're growing up, you're you're a teenager, you're yep. at school. What's kind of driving and motivating you then? What did you want to be when you grew up? I'm asking that question, yep. knowing that I still don't know yet. I'm working it out. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So. Very weirdly, um, I I loved school and I thrived in the school environment. So I had um, you know a secret life where I was being you know uh, beaten and hurt, uh, but I was a super achiever at school. I loved school. I got lots of positives out of school, um, and I wanted to be a professor of fine literature because I I just books were my my escape. It, we had a house full of books, books everywhere, and I could escape into books. And um, and I, yeah, that's what I wanted to be. So, you know, I was at school and I was a sporty kid as well as an academic kid and I was uh, fairly popular and I had, you know, a good group of friends. Um, but I wanted to go off to university and I wanted to be a professor of fine literature. And uh, so that was that was my my... My thing that I wanted to do didn't happen. Completely didn't happen, uh, but I was. I was, you know, I was really passionate because there was something about the escapism. I think of uh, books and literature and the written word that I just loved. What What was what kind of literature was it? When you say escapism, are you, are you disappearing off into other stories and to get a, to get away? Is that anything? Okay. Anything and everything. Um, you know, one of the things that we, you know, like I said, you know, I, was, I had a pretty privileged childhood. We just had, you know, books, 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 anything and whatever we wanted um, in terms of, and my dad was a reader and we would, you know, we had books all over the house and we had, you know, back in the day, what was it, um, you know, you'd have those book clubs you'd belong to and you'd get all of cool books sent in and things like that so we had that happening all the time and so there wasn't a topic I wasn't interested in I had a really curious mind and I was kind of just ate that stuff up yeah mm. just loved it yeah so you so you didn't pursue that what did you pursue well I had um so 
So I went from, you know, from a small rural school, um, you know, uh, back in back then it was called one to seven, you know, it was first form to seventh form. And I was the head girl and I was on the board of trustees as a student rep and I was, you know, did all of this cool stuff. And then I went off to university and I recreated myself. It was great fun. Because I think you get that opportunity when you go from a small town into, you know, this little little community into this bigger community. So I, I recreated myself. Um, I was at a um, place called Student Village, Waikato University. Um, and, you know, and I'd always had sort of, you know, spiral perms and blonde hair and stuff. And I ended up getting myself some uh, dreadlocks and, you know, just kind of um, immersed myself in student politics. and. I decided that I would do a number of papers in my first year just to see what I wanted to, you know, what what I really wanted to do because I thought I did. So I had a couple of literature papers, some um, psychology papers, and I had um, some uh, um Māori papers, and then um, and then I did some women's studies, which is now called gender studies, a couple of women's studies papers. And there was just this connection with the women's studies um, stuff. So I was in a lecture um, with uh, the most amazing lecturer, um, guest lecturer. We had a lecturer called Woman in Law. And um, Ruth Bush, um, who is a, you know, a, a trailblazing family lawyer in our country, came and did a, um, a guest lectureship. And again, in that moment, again, there was something just came over me and I was like, damn it, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to be a family court lawyer and I'm going to work in the field of family violence because that's what this woman has done and she's my hero. So that's what I decided to do, like, like that, just whole course of life changed like that but if you think about it really it was almost a natural conclusion to get there um yeah so I applied in 1991 this was I applied uh well 1990 for the 1991 year I applied to go into law school at Waikato University it's the first year that we had um direct entry into the law school and we had um, the most amazing lecturers and um, just yeah it was I got I got accepted because I had great grades and yeah decided to do law but then because I'm a Gemini I decided that I'd also do another degree as well at the same time so I decided to do a um, a degree in uh, women's studies and New Zealand studies so uh, that's the sort of uh, New Zealand studies are the study that you do about the history of this country without enough te reo Māori to do a BA in Māori um, so that's uh, that's sort of it in the women's studies so I was basically like laws my bread and butter this social science degree is my super passion yeah what, what drove the, the, the interest in women's studies what was that um again it's that social justice stuff so you know um part of it was around not being um not you know 
when you see injustice and you grow up with injustice, you can accept it or you can fight it, right? And so that's what women's studies was about for me. It was actually trying to make, um, understand what my world was like. Yeah, um, trying to understand because, you know, um, the 90s, you know, we had, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on around the women's movement at that time. And, and we were, we had, oh gosh, we had fun. We had so much fun um, just railing against the patriarchy and doing doing student stuff, you know, like actually the really important stuff about raising your voice up and um, complaining about the state of uh, women. Um, and part of that was around how women were treated in the law and how, uh, you know, um, how, how family violence was treated. And... Um, so back then we had, you know, um, this incredible study done and part of Ruth Bush was one of the lecturers who did that study around the, basically the state of family violence in this country or domestic violence as we called it then and the horror stories that happened around police response, around community response, around, you know, just the way that, that, that people, um, you know, women and children were being killed and how um, we just continue to sort of not really make any changes. The women's refuge movement was really strong um, and it was just, yeah, it was just that kind of, that time, it was a really specific time, culminated in the uh, Domestic Violence Act um, in 1995. So I was right in the forefront of all of that the law school where the, um, you know, the research had occurred, um, it was just, yeah, it was a fascinating time. Why, why do you think we were witnessing that kind of thing but weren't doing anything different? Well. Um, as, an, as a society, I mean. You know? Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, part of it was around um, that there was the belief back then that it was a private matter, right? So. I don't know if you recall doing this as a police officer, but it was pretty common. You, you pick the guy, he, he'd done, you know, he'd been violent, you pick him up, you take him around the block for a couple of times to have him cool off, and then he'd go home again. And it was just like, mate, you know, you can't do that, but sort of no criminal offending, generally speaking, was ever kind of recorded. Um, there wasn't really the consequence because it was seen as a private matter, a matter in the behind closed doors, and a man's home was his castle, and he had the right to do that. And that's where I talk about those changes of beliefs and values. We don't agree to that now. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't mm-hmm. think that that's the case now. But back then, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, we just have to think about the fact that marital rape wasn't a crime till 1985 in this country. You know, those are the kinds of things that we we just lived with. And you know, it's really interesting as an MP, I want to go back and read the Hansard, um, you know, the record of those MPs that stood up and said that you had a right to rape in marriage. You know, I, I'm really interested in seeing who, I haven't quite, quite got around to it, but I'm really interested in seeing what their thought process was like back then, that woman within a marriage had no right to say no. That they were a chattel and owned, you know, like it yeah. was 
you know, it was a different that's time, a tricky, right? That's a tricky thing, though, isn't it? It's, it's like now you and I are having a conversation about it. It seems completely Bizarre. off the charts. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. But you're right. In order to actually, you can look back at records. Yeah. But we have, kind of have to put ourselves in their position with their yeah. information at their time. Yeah. As, to, to try and understand why that seemed like a rational thing. Which uh, is, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, exactly like family violence, right? Back then it was kind of like, well, it's a private matter between the family and, you know, um, oh, we're not happy about it happening. and But we know that, that family, it happens in that family or that family. Different time, you know. Um, so, yeah, a really exciting time at university to do that stuff. Um, I, I, sorry, I, for, again, rubbing my kind of, a bit of my story into this, but... Um, Something you said that was a question you asked me about, you know, my experience in the yeah. police, and I it's probably a little bit different actually. But I was in the UK in the police, and yeah. that was in the 90s, um, early 90s, and so I was a 20 year old police officer mm. going out and uh, dealing with domestic disputes between people who were twice my age and then some, yeah, sure. Um, wondering how the hell am I supposed to resolve this, you know, but um. What I really struggled with at that time, and I didn't intend for it to go this way, but like we said, it's just going yeah. to go where it goes, right? Sure. And, I've, and it's, a, it's a question that I've, I've thought about a lot since. But um, what I really struggled with at that time was you, you take, you were right earlier, primarily the man, yeah. uh, you know, out of, out of the situation. Um, we would uh, at least take them away and, uh, to, to the police yeah. station. Overnight, yep. Uh, because I think through experience we learned that if you went around the block a couple of times and dropped we'll them back off again, it, you'd be there again you. an hour later, yeah, sure. And it just escalate, yep. So you you take one of them, usually the man out of the situation, yep. Um, and then you, in order to be able to progress anything, you'd need to be able to take a statement and, yeah, um, and, and then sort of invoke some kind of proceedings through the usual channels, yep. What I struggled with as a young person to understand was. Why most of those statements, and I don't know whether, I, you know, possibly through fear, um, a lot of those statements were kind of revoked or rescinded. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, you you wouldn't end up getting to be able yeah. to go through the court process and um, and dealing with that in a way that maybe would maybe I'm saying maybe because punitive action yeah. doesn't always um, sure. yeah. resolve things, um, but you didn't even get the chance to actually yeah. put that through the process. Yeah, and so they. The couple would be back uh, in situ at home in that relationship yeah. again, and sure enough, you know, within months you'd be back there yeah. doing the same thing, and it just seemed to be a, a pattern. And I really struggled with that as a young police officer yeah. to understand why does this keep happening, yeah. why does that person want to subject themselves yeah. to that level of yeah. violence uh, repeatedly, and and I, and I think maybe. Can't speak for everyone, but maybe from the outside looking in, if that's not your experience, you've not got any understanding of yeah. it. We kind of view it. I'm going to say objectively. Yeah. Um, maybe it's not, but you you kind of view it from a distance and form an opinion. Yeah. About the people involved. Yeah, yeah. Which is not necessarily the right opinion, yeah. uh, of course. And and that's yeah, and that's that kind of, and I think you're very delicately stepping around. It's like, well, gosh, if she did. She sh why doesn't she leave because it's so horrible, right? Which is the question that everyone gets asked. If it's so very horrible, 
this is awful, why don't you leave? Well, because <laughs> it's complex, right? So um, I'll, just, I'll just respond to the police training first and then I'll, then I'll go back to that. So one of the things that we do in New Zealand now is we have some really significant training for our police force. They're dealing with more, more than 50% of their work now is family violence. So they have some significant training um, to try and help support them and understand their beliefs and values and understand that. And another part of what they do now is they have the ability to take a recording of the victim at the time of the incident. And that victim, she does not have to go to court and give her story again. She does it the once. She doesn't have to prove uh, or stand up in court. And that is um, being so much more effective in terms of prosecutions and supporting people. So that's so that's part of it because um, the second part of this is that regardless of the violence, there is still often incredible love between these people. So you can be violent and still love someone. You can be a victim and still love the perpetrator because they're not always that person. They're not always that violent person. They might be, as time goes on, more controlling and more violent, but there is, you know, people just aren't a monster. They're not just a monster, a violent person. They're a whole pile of different things. So part of what happens for victims of violence is that it is incredibly hard to leave um, when you've got children, mortgage, a whole pile of different, you know, you've got all sorts of things. When he is begging you and promising never to do that again, that he is sorry, that he will get help, that he will change, that he was wrong, that he loves you, you know. Um, so it's not just the sitting in this sort of isolated context. You've also got this whole kind of pressure. And the family could be pressurising as well, like, you know, we – we don't leave our men or um, the church says you stay with your husband or, you know, but he's such a good guy. I've never seen him do that to you. What do you do to provoke him? Um, yeah. So That's an interesting thing. Yeah, what yeah. What do you do to provoke him? Yeah, what do you do? What's your, what's your role in this? Because, gee, you can be, you know, bleep, bleep, bleep. Yeah. And I've seen you go off at him, and it's not—it's a wonder that he hasn't hit you sooner, mm. you know. Um, which is again all those beliefs and values about she's responsible for this violence. So, I think part of that real um, difficulty around people understanding is that they think of violence in a context of that one-off event, when actually it's about psychological abuse. You know, you will never have someone who loves. You like me. I will kill the children if you leave me. I will kill myself if you leave me. I will hunt you down and I will tell your workplace what a crazy cow you are. I will do, you know, I will put those photos of us on the internet. I will, you know, like, so there's all of those kinds of uses of violence which sort of sit around and simmer around the physical violence. And many people are never hit. They're never hit in their lives. They might have had their favourite things smashed or their 
the wolves might have holes in them. They've never physically been hurt and they don't believe or understand that they've um, experienced violence either. So they're like, I know I feel miserable. I know that this is awful. I have to beg him for money. He won't let me see my friends. He smashes my phone, but he's never hurt me. And that's the difference. So, you know, um, so yeah, as a young police officer, and the other the other thing that police officers also used to talk to me about a lot, and I've worked with a lot of police over the years, is um, she would turn on them, on the police. So the victim would turn on the police and be swearing and effing and blinding and aggressively pushing them away and not, you know, yeah. not seeking help. But that is that is um, a protective mechanism to keep her safe because if she's seen to be talking, you you know, please leave. They leave. But he's there. I've experienced that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's really awful and it's like, but I'm just trying to help you. But literally, mm. if she doesn't behave in that way, she's going to be punished even more when you're gone. So really complex, right? Uh, yeah, and absolutely. So it is, yeah. hard to yeah. so hard to kind of combat because um, what we think of victims is that um, you know that, that they um, you know are cowering in the corner when often they're aggressively coming at you because they have to. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I, I was also reminded of a case um, where I got to speak to. Uh, this individual, because um, I because I did really genuinely sort of struggle with yeah. why she kept going back to, to yeah. this person who was, you know, really really violent. Yeah, you know, I'm talking broken bones and yeah. you know, cheekbones and just yeah. couldn't really understand, you know, why. And it was because she'd been made to feel that she was worthless, had no value, yeah. and that actually no one would appreciate her, and yeah. she was lucky to have him. Yeah. You know, um, and when when that was put to me, I kind of, you know, that deepened my understanding a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, that psychological abuse is a massive part in isolation as well. So psychological abuse, you know, um, no one will ever love you. Um, look at you, you fat cow, whatever. Versus, um, you take away all the person's support, their family, their friendships. They have no one but you, and you become their one source of truth. And that is an incredibly dangerous space to be in. Yeah. So um, part of the Domestic Violence Act, as it was in 1995, had psychological abuse as part of the definition of violence, which was incredible because up until that point, it had only ever been a physical act. Yeah. So it was a good, good broadening. But people still don't understand that now, even now. So I'm conscious of the fact that I think we're, you know, we're, we're jumping, ju jumping we're, all over the place. We are, yeah. But I think, yeah, I, for me, it makes sense um, because we're, we're talking about this, you know, um, your life's work. Yeah. Which is good and we're threading it through. So um, we'll, we'll keep going as we are, I think, if that's all right with you. Yeah, sure. Um, we kind of got deep very quick, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. But I, I think where I want to go to next and again, it's sort of jumping back a little bit to come forward. Sure. You, you didn't go through with becoming a lawyer. 
you studied law, yes. am I right? Yes. But you didn't actually end up practicing right. law. Right, yes. So can you talk to us a little bit more about about the choices back then around around that and yep. the direction and, and you know where did where to next? So I guess um, quite an important aspect was um, I uh, had a partner and we chose to have a child and then um, I realised my you know he, he's a good friend of mine now but back then we weren't good f- for each other wasn't a good relationship. Um, and so we separated and I became a single mum as a student. And um, and so that was quite, you know, that was that was quite hard work. Um, you know, I was a student rep on the on student union, I was a woman's rights officer. I went back to work after two weeks with my child. Um, it's only 12 hours a week kind of job, but I was a student as well and... Um, yeah, so so I I spent a long time at well longer time at university, the equivalent of seven year seven years at university. Got two degrees, one a four year degree, one a three year degree. But did did that part time, and part of that was I was always intending to be um, a family law uh, practitioner. I always I I did want to do that, but it actually became quite difficult as a single mum, to get the opportunities to do that. So you'd have an internship over Christmas holidays, for example. Well, I wasn't able to do that. Um, I didn't have the connections with uh, law firms or, you know, family connections or anything to get um, an internship. And there wasn't sort of any any kind of um, idea that a single parent would have any kind of break and be, you know, and have an opportunity. It was basically, can you do it? Shit as I can't. Um, right, well, you're not, you're not given that opportunity then. So I didn't get to have some of those kind of um, experiences in law firms that many of us at that time did. Um, and I kind of got to the end of that, uh, my degree, I um, and I thought I better find a job that actually can support me as a single parent. So I went into working in government um, roles. But part of, but then part of me did want to kind of go, actually I do want to be a lawyer. So I went back and did my profs and became a barrister and solicitor just to prove to myself that I could if I wanted to. <laughs> like I had the ability to do it rather than um, technically wasn't able to put in the 60-plus hours a week and be in, in a culture which was quite toxic at the time, uh, pretty co- uh, toxic culture, but also um, not at all welcoming to a single parent at the time. Right. Yeah, so I went into um, places that had good um, unionised employment that helped and supported uh, parents sick leave, annual leave, uh, you know, a a salary and, you know, a 40-hour week. Um, Yeah. So it was just practicality, really. Yeah. Yeah. So at risk of going off on another tangent, uh, well, it's not a tangent as such, but, you know, that that scenario that you just painted there, so you're you're a a young woman um, with a child, 
talked about a toxic environment, but just just the ability to be able to work what you know what the expectation is yeah. of a sixty hour week yeah. is problematic yeah. for women to become yeah. lawyers. Yep. Yeah. Well, at that time, fifty um, percent of all graduates were women, and one percent were partners. So, um, you know, one percent of all women were partners. Mm. And that, you know, so what does that tell you about equity and the law for women, you know? Um, I think it's probably significantly shifted now. But we have seen some, you know, some interesting information about the toxic nature of, of um, some of our bigger law firms, for example. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, there wasn't, you know, I'd gone through university and knew, knew it for exactly what it was. But I still had a child to take care of, and um, I, um, yeah, I had to make the choice that I made. And actually, when I went into those jobs, they were better paid than new graduate lawyers were mm. paid because basically you you got paid really poorly for the joy of or the uh, you know you basically put some money in the bank for that firm so that they would take you on longer term. Um, yeah. How did you How did you feel if that was your passion? And you know, like obviously, as a as a, as a young woman, yep. as a student, you you know, and um, I've forgotten the lecturer's name now. Was, uh, Bush, Bush. 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 Yeah. Um, it inspired you. Yeah. And you could see a pathway for yourself, um, but you, you couldn't take it. How did you How did that feel? I uh, look. I think I've said to you, I'm pretty practical. It was kind of like do. You know, um, what do I, will I be able to still continue to do my life's work while doing, working in government organisations? And I could. So every time I worked in, like I worked in work and income, I worked in ACC and then uh, in, in justice, in Ministry of Justice, every time I worked in that role, I would pivot my work to focus on working uh, in the area of, uh, family and sexual violence elimination. So, I was able to do to do that. So um, that's one of the one of the great things about I think uh, working in a large organisation. If you put your hand up for something that a lot of people find uncomfortable, you'll get the opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, and at that time it was still pretty uncomfortable for a lot of people to think about uh, family violence. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk to me a bit more about your career then from there, from where we got to? Right, so um, I worked at Work and Income, then I moved across to ACC and I was a mediator and negotiator with ACC. So um, it was sort of aligned. Uh, I was there for a year as a mediator and negotiator, setting up um, setting up a team. Great work. But then um, Helen Clark came in. Uh, the the Clark government came in and um, got rid of the legislation that had sort of privatised work accidents, which is the area I was working in, uh, which I was actually stoked about, to be fair, Um, basically because, you know, mediating, negotiating people's lives um, as to whether they would have cover or not was pretty extraordinary. extraordinary. Um, So, yeah, there was that. And then I went into case management and I was really fortunate or not, I'm not sure. Um, I had, we, we, 
you know, I had new work accidents, but then we kind of did this mixed model where as a case manager, I would, I had a, a number of you know, um, elderly people who needed home help right through to complex, serious injuries, which are people who would, you know, you're just uh, offering and supporting um, um, rehab to give them quality of life. They would never heal. So tetraplegics, people with uh, severe um, injuries. And my caseloads happen to have a whole pile of, well, when I say a whole pile, six children who had been beaten as children and were subsequently brain damaged to the point where they were, you know, unable to function on a without support on a daily. Um, so, so again, it was being able to support and engage with those families, and I didn't, I didn't do that um, work for very long. But when I, um, it struck me absolutely that we would allocate funds for these children who had been, for the rest of their lives, lots of resources to support them. But there was no money going into prevention from ACC in the family violence space, nothing. Um, and that struck me as the most bizarre thing. So... I left when I left that job and I went to the Ministry of Justice. I was fortunate enough to start a project and dragged ACC into that project, which resulted in them starting to fund um, prevention. They realised actually going to end up um, preventing so much, put it blandly, cost to the state by preventing family violence. Um, so, yeah, it was just... Con Ooh, sorry about that. <laughs> just constantly moving the uh, dial and constantly drawing attention back to that. So, um, yeah, that, that role in the Ministry of Justice, I did it for 11 years. I loved it. I just loved it. So as a domestic violence advisor, ran a region... Um, of providers of services, um, but had this really cool opportunity to work collaboratively across government to uh, break down the silos around family violence. Um, and part of it was, yeah, getting ACC on board. So that start, started to have some more money to fund um, the family violence prevention space. And, yeah, we just did some amazing work in that space. I just loved it. And it was... Uh, you know, like a magpie, it was a new shiny thing, but it was also I could see strategically the long-term impact of this work. And eventually, a few years after that, a few, fair few years, we now have a joint venture on family violence, which is sort of the outcome of this work many, many years ago, in the yeah. 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend the company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products 
designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organisation, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. So, so I haven't really framed this question yet, so forgive me if it comes out the wrong way, but I was just thinking about this. You, you mentioned a couple of times in, within that passage there about how fortunate you were to have the opportunity. Do you think that this, that um, that's kind of you putting stuff out there and, and like the universe sending it your way or you subconsciously seeing and finding and creating these opportunities because that's what you're passionate about? Bit of both. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes timing is an amazing thing, right? You just end up somewhere along the way in a place you never thought you'd be. Mm-hmm. Um, but also... I've never been never been shy about coming forward and speaking up. And um, I've also, I mean, this is a this family violence is an area that everyone agrees. It's a bad thing. So most people are like, oh, it's hard to do something, but let's do something. Even if they get it wrong, they'd rather do something than not. So I guess part of it is around seeking the opportunities and Pretty driven. Mm. I've been pretty driven in this space for a long time. Mm. But the other part is also just, um, you know, I've had some amazing mentors and people who have been prepared to let me mm. uh, kind of run with ideas as mm. well and just, um, you know, basically put in, the, put in the hard work to get the results, really. So... When was the women's refuge? Was that after? Was that kind of after the yes. justice department? Yep. Yeah. So, um, I had a a kind of it was eleven years, and the the job had shifted tremendously, and there were lots of opportunities, but it had kind of got to the point where um, I'd been there a long time, and the things that I wanted to be able to do, I wasn't able to do. I was working, for, you know, Ministry of Justice. You, you would understand having been in the police force, you couldn't speak out against policies you didn't agree with or things that you didn't think were doing or going well. Um, and it just kind of got to the point where I thought, no, it, my, my time here is done. Um, and so I started looking around and uh, Tauranga Women's Refuge had been one of the organisations who I'd worked with for those, those 11 years um, I knew it was a really um, sound organisation and I had good um, a good working relationship with them and the job just appeared. And I thought, oh, I'll give that a crack. So, I, um, yeah, I applied and I was fortunate enough to get the job and, um, you know, I had all of that experience and background, but I'd never worked in an NGO except as a volunteer. So, uh, you know, I'd... So being a manager of a service, it was like my dream job, but also terrifying, terrifying. Um, yeah. And so how did, on a personal level, you know, that's, um, I suppose, 
shifting a little bit away from you know a higher level kind of trying to make things happen within the community in the roles that you've had to actually physically being hands-on yeah directly helping or yeah. directly witnessing as well um what was the growth for you in that so part of it was around um you know i had these really deep and enriching conversations like 11 years with different service providers about the actual change they were making. And really, in the Ministry of Justice, I was facilitating that process, but I wasn't um, able to, you know, get the, I guess, the personal uh, reward of my, you know, it was a step removed from the personal reward of working mm. directly with with uh, women and children and I also thought you know I, I don't have any credibility to tell these organizations how to do their work if I haven't done it myself as well so I should get a good you know a good grounding and NGO work to understand fully what is happening on the ground because I can't advocate best, you know I can't advocate um, best for these organizations or I can't without fully kind of experiencing it, walking in their shoes. So that's what I did. I got a crack. Um, got to say, I was tremendous. Um, yeah, I was going to say it again, tremendously lucky. No, I was very, <laughs> very fortunate to have my um, dear friend Hazel Huppy, um, who was the previous manager, stay on as a, um, as a, a, a trustee for governance. She supported me, like not only on a personal level, but um, and emotionally, but also as a you know as an employee. Um, and when I left, she went back and managed the refuge. And um, yeah, once you're in, you're never out. I think with refuge, and yeah, just so pleased to have the support of good women around me to do that work because it's very hard. Real hard work. So, so from a kind of rewarding perspective, what were your? Um, I was going to say achievements, but it's probably not the right word. But I mean, I know that you did achieve some things. Yeah, I've read sure. about this, but um, what were the wins for you? What what difference did you make in that role? Uh, lots, lots of different things in different spaces. But I guess for me. It was also about having the freedom to actually speak the truth of the, you know, because I got I I come from working in government organisations where literally you're unable to kind of criticise, you know, publicly you can't do those kinds of things, and so I had this freedom to be able to say what sucked, you know, actually what was wrong with and and because. There was a credible story to tell around the refuge and the movement of women's refuge movement. It was incredibly freeing to be able to literally say to people, you know, we've had nine years without any funding increases. Our workload has inc increased fourfold. The government funds us $21.25 an hour and I have 14 staff to pay out of $21.25 an hour. On what level is this okay? And it just wasn't. There was no justification. Um, 
and no ability for um, to be clapped back at. It was literally, we're expecting you to fundraise to do the work that we contract you for. And it was it was a great place to be. So lots and lots of opportunities to talk to media, um, talk to uh, government agencies, and they all they all couldn't disagree. You know, they were all, yeah, you're right. Lots of opportunities to fundraise to our community and say, literally, this is this is what it means for us. Um, you know, we finish our contracts in the first three months of the year from government, and the rest is fundraised by this community. Now, if you care about victims of family violence, please help. And they did. Amazing, amazing opportunities. It was a, yeah. So there was so there was that side of it, the political politicising side of it, the work that happens uh, on the smell of an oily rag. That, as far as I was concerned, is not good enough um, to actually. You, you literally cannot expect an issue that costs billions of dollars in the country to be managed and taken care of without funding it by expecting volunteers to work 24-7 to do this work. It's like, do you want this to stop or do you just want it to quietly go away? Do you literally want it to stop or not? Um, So that was was a huge huge freeing experience. The other thing was, you know, and I have, and I haven't really said it, but I have over the years done voluntary work um, as a non-Māori woman's facilitator in programs, family violence programs, and I'd worked, you know, a lot of the time with with different um, people in the different roles that I had. Um, and so for me, it was tremendously rewarding to have that moment where you see the light go on for a woman um, or her children, that they weren't to blame, that they weren't at fault. And once you see that light go on, they can never go back to a state of confusion. They can all, they can always hold that and then begin to journey. And so, yeah, just the most rewarding work. Um, did you did you do you feel that your life experience of having uh, domestic violence within your family as a child that that's benefited you? Oh, so I, I, it sounds wrong. No. But no, has no, it benefited uh, you in the roles that you've had, particularly yeah, that role there? Absolutely. Because you've been able to be more genuine and authentic. Yep. As opposed to someone who's never experienced that yep. firsthand and doesn't know about it, coming in and doing a theoretical kind yeah, of job. I, I have walked walked in the shoes of victims of family violence and, you know, um, that does help. Mind you, one in three women have, so mm. it's not like I'm a rare creature. But I think... Um, you know, I'm quite. I was quite determined um, around this space. Yeah, um, but yeah, I don't. I think I don't think of myself as a victim. I think it was an experience that I had, or experiences that I had as a young person. Um, I'm not that victim now. I'm not in that situation now, um, and so I can just. You know, I can just use that that as a learning opportunity mm. to help others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I don't know. Like I said, I think I, I read about uh, some of the fundraising that you've done and working with supermarkets and the likes yeah. to, you know, create or overcome the funding issue around uh, yeah. food provision and things like yeah. that, which is which is a great outcome. What what's changed since you were there in respect of funding? Has has that changed, or is that still now an issue that actually these organisations need to fundraise within the community? They still it need, they, it, it's much better. They still need to fundraise, but billions of additional um, money has gone across the whole sector. Yeah, um, you know, I remember my first my first year and um, in in Parliament, and we put seventy six million dollars straight into frontline services. So that was the beginning, and then every year subsequently, we've put um, more money into frontline services, recognising that actually making people work for free or minimum wage just isn't going to systematically change anything. So, yeah, I felt a huge part of the voice into that over over my five years in Parliament, um, just being able to speak to that. Um, and it's been, you know... Um, I, I'm just, I'm just, just so thankful we now have a minister for the elimination of family and sexual violence, um, or the prevention of. Um, that we also have just this um, joint venture now, which sort of sits across ten government agencies, and those ten government agencies, uh, their CEs are linked in um, and have to respond and they each have work programs and we now have this um, this uh, you know it's up to 30 years worth of progress plan working forward about the elimination of this um, this stuff um, which is you know I, I felt a small part of that uh, yeah it's it's everyone knows I'm that refuge woman <laughs> um, but it has been yeah it has been really good not um, I haven't been up in the front forefront of that work but I have been quietly systematically working uh, the room shall we say in in those spaces and um, you know many of my friends still continue to work in the sector at the forefront so it's really good to be able to work work between mm. government and the NGO sector need sure. to be talking. So so that answer was great segue into the next kind of, I would call it chapter. I always talk about people, you know, living a, a life that's a story worth retelling. So if, if you think about it in chapters, you know, the your kind of political career, like you said, it was about, started about five years ago, 2017. Yep. Um, so before we get into more detail about that, which I'd love to do, yep. um, what what drove that? What changed that? I mean, you've you've talked you've talked yep. about. I think you labelled yourself as a, a political activist. Yeah. Um, and you know, and clearly you were probably doing a good job on the outside of politics yep. in that respect. But then you chose to yep. get into politics. What yep. what what drove that from being at the the refuge to yep. taking that leap? I guess it was. Um, it, a few things, but you know, one of them was the the cumulative effect of having to beg for money in the community, and something I saw that was, you know, it was, you know, 
fundamentally it should have been funded by government agencies who were contracting us to do this work. And then when the money ran out, they would still contract us to do the work. So we would, you know, over-deliver and there was no money for it. So there was that and that was that really annoyed me. Like that frustrated the hell out of me because literally how could we be expected to do the work of all of these government agencies because they'd close their case files, their, you know, DHB would close their work and Oranga Tamariki or SIFS as it was at the time, they'd close their files when we picked up their clients. We had no money to do that. Um, so that, that was one of the things that really frustrated me about it. It was basically, how can this be? Because we have a good heart and we know it's important work. You take advantage of us doing that. We are taken advantage of because we never go on strike and we'll never stop doing this work. I mean, it was a really bad bargaining point, right? <laughs> so there's that. But I guess for me, the the moment, I, you know, I do have these clarifying moments where something just sort of, it's almost like something stops in my brain. It's a moment where... Um, because as the manager, we had, you know, I had my staff and they were working and engaged and having really good close relationships with um, the women and children that came into the whare or in the community. And so a lot of their social work depended on good relationships with them and helping and supporting them. And so I often got to be the bearer of bad news. And um, the bearer of bad news was something that I didn't like to do but had to. So what happens in the women's refuge in the safe house is that we we could only have up to 10 people. So that was up to, um, you know, could uh, f- four adult women um, and a mixture of children. If there was a mama and she came in and she had six kids, then there's only three other spaces available, you know. So it was a constant... Um, communal living space that was always very carefully maintained. When you came into the safe house, you needed to come into the safe house under a certain set of criteria. Because remember, this is a city of 126,000 people, as it was at the time. We had space for 10 women and children in total. So we had to maintain a really strict criteria for them coming and staying. And it was basically around being unsafe in the community. They needed to be in hiding. And we would often get uh, women and children who come from other communities to be in hiding with us. Um, And we would send our women out as well. And so when they were once, you know, we would work with these women. um, Basically, you know, their lives would be enriched. They would... They would feel good about themselves. They would start to go out into the community and explore and they would start to, you know, understand that they didn't need to live with violence and that their partners, change or not, they were going to be okay. And so when they were safe in the community, they had to leave the safe house. We would try work with them to get them somewhere to live. Literally... They couldn't stay at the safe house. And so it resulted in me having to evict women and children. And that's hard enough. 
But when you have uh, a housing crisis, which is what we had, but it wasn't the national government refused to accept it as, as a crisis, we couldn't get our women and children into anything. We, they often had really bad credit ratings. They often, you know, their houses had been wrecked and all sorts of things. Um, we couldn't get them anywhere. We, and some communities, uh, some places, refused to have refuge women, you know, because they were afraid of what was going to happen. So basically I ended up having to evict women and children into homelessness. And I remember this day, and it was just awful. This mama, she'd been there, she was um, now safe in the community, she started going out and, you know, her kids were safe. We couldn't get her anywhere. And we just, we had other families that needed to come into the safe house. And I just had to, I had to evict her. And I had to evict her into complete and utter homelessness so that she would get far enough up the list with working income to be able to go into a motel for a week. And that was all we could give her. And I just felt morally corrupt. I just, because she said to me, well, what was the point of leaving? Um, you know, um, and that's when women often go back at least they had a home for their kids, right? And I just thought, there's some, something. This, the, we, I just cannot. I just cannot continue to play this game. I cannot. I had to do that. I had to put that family out on the street. And it just broke my heart. And I thought, right, that to, I'm going into politics. I'm changing the world. <laughs> so that's that's um, basically what I did. I'd had people ask me if I'd want to, uh, you know, you should go into politics, that kind of thing. But stuff it. I'll do it. And you did. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did. did. Yeah. Again, timing, amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. Can, can I ask you, I, I dabbled with the idea myself of going into politics some time ago. Um, for For... You know, for the reasons that you know were driving me at the time, um, uh, and that didn't that didn't pan out. Um, in hindsight, I'm, I'm probably pleased it didn't. Um, I, I don't know that I could handle being a politician, to be honest with you, and be subjected to the kind of scrutiny that you get and the the constant kind of limelight of whatever you do is wrong by somebody. So what's it like being a politician? <laughs> well, it's, it's um, so, so it's, it's this incredible mix of just amazing privilege and opportunity with unrelenting work and drudgery. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, like, um, you know, I often tell people it's really funny, you'll be in the supermarket and you'll be, you know, in the sanitary product aisle or something, and someone will you'll be holding your product, and someone will be up talking to you about their local issue. So you don't get at times, you know, you you it's it can be incredibly intrusive into. Sometimes it just needs some peace and quiet and calm. Um, but at the same time, man, I've had the most 
amazing opportunities to do things and to change things and to have um, the experiences, international experiences. Um, yeah, it can be it can be lonely and it can be um, hard, but I've got some amazing friends who are in Parliament who understand. I've got some amazing friends who, long-time friends since, you know, ch- children. Um, and you just learn to cherish those that you can trust. Yeah. But, yeah, it's the most bizarre experience when you go into Parliament and you realise that all the security guards have learnt your name and people literally stop and open doors for you, like literally open doors for you. And um, when you're... Um, when you when you're off and out and about and doing something, people treat you differently. And then I always find people are like, oh, you, "You're just you're just quite normal, aren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I'm quite normal. I put my trousers on one leg at a time, you know. Um, mm-hmm. the, yeah, I mean, and I think that's the the, the joy or the blessing of. Um, of having list MPs as well as electorate MPs. There's an experience, a series of um, people that get into Parliament who wouldn't normally be in Parliament. So, yeah, we get that, that chance. So, oh. so any, any, you know, like I was saying, any regrets is probably not the right way to pitch that, really. But, you know, is it, was it worth it to step into politics? Yes. Yes, it was. It was, yeah, you can see, oh, I could see that look on your face there. Um, <laughs> you're about to, it's, it was a real surprise when I first started. Like, it really was that you think, okay, you're an MP, great. You go into Parliament, you realise you've lost the ability to control your day. That's a, and, and having been in an NGO and, you know, I was used to being able to problem solve and fix things and, fast-paced, but I was also able to control my day. When you're in Parliament and you're backbencher, you're literally um, not able to leave the precinct unless you have a whip slip, unless it's lunchtime or dinner time, right? And so, you know, people say to me, oh, well, where's a great place to eat in Wellington? I have no idea. <laughs> there are two places I eat in Wellington. One of them is my apartment and... <laughs> And the other is Copperfields, which is our local, you know, our calf that's sitting in the, um, you know, you, you don't get out, you don't get to shop, you don't get to explore, you don't get to do any of those things. You're literally there. And you're there from about 8 a.m. in the morning till 10 p.m. at night. So you, you, your days are long and, um, yeah, you, you can't just whip out for a coffee with a friend or something. You're literally there the whole time so it's a long day and I didn't realize I didn't realize that that's how it worked with being on precinct um but yeah it was, it was a, I'm used to it now but it was a it felt very confining yeah, yeah. Talk, talk about that confining that's probably a good word there you mentioned another word as well I'm just trying to think of it or oh, you said that your days are con- kind of controlled yeah um, and I'm asking a, a current politician in the go- current yeah. government this yeah. question, so I'm I'm kind of expecting a political answer <laughs> or oh, a PC answer. Yeah. But you know, how constraining is it for a political activist to be 
an MP in government. Yep. Um, and I'm thinking here about you, you know, kind of driving your agenda, yep. your life's work, which we've talked about yep. at length today. But being an MP is, you know, it's much broader range than than yep. just that. Yeah. How how is that for you? Look, I think um, I'm tremendously lucky with the party I'm in, and I know you're going to go, oh yeah, of course that's a that's a thing you would say. But literally, I don't have, like, you know that we have what's called a caucus, right? And what goes on in caucus is is uh, pretty synchronous. You don't talk about it. But generally speaking, if I have something to say, I will say it. I will be heard. I can change things. Things have been changed because of what I've said and done. Um, and that literally, I don't know if that, is in other parties. I imagine it might be. I'm not sure. But the ability to caucus and have the discussion and to hash it out, and it can be um, very intense, but literally we're all equals in that room. Now, people may believe that that's not true, but I don't give a fig if they think that that's not the case because I certainly feel like an equal in that room. And there's no point in my career where I've actually had to sit on my hands or shut my mouth I can have my say might not change anything but I can certainly have my say and I think that's the value of good policy making as well when you have a group of people like um, we've got quite a few you know varied list MPs and and electorate MPs now with different walks of life and experience you know we all come at things differently um, you know, an example for me would be I went to my caucus with an idea about food rescue, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned that before. And when I was at Refuge, um, I worked really closely with Good Neighbour Food Rescue, my local food rescue organisation, who transformed the, the funding that we needed to get. Um, you know, I didn't have to fundraise for meat and food for families. We had... We had this food supplied to us from Food Rescue and I basically went to Parliament with the idea that, because I think, you know, they basically supported us to the tune of about $70,000 a year worth of food and cleaning products and toilet paper and sanitary products and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so I went to Parliament with the idea that we should do something about that and um and I remember the first time I, 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 I did a, I, I wanted to, to um, you know, engage with it. And I took a paper to caucus and I engaged caucus on it. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, sounds like an all right idea or whatever. But it took a period of time and the idea itself was picked up uh, in budget. We got $32 million for it, and it was uh, to set up um, the system across the country at a time when COVID had just hit, when we needed to get food out to families, uh, when we needed a support, we needed a mechanism. And so it was kind of like that fresh thinking that just at the time it was needed, and that became part of a, um, a significant piece of work that continues today now with that food sector because it's the story right it's the story of environmental benefits 
but it's also poverty and food hung and food poverty. And it's also just about the fact that nobody likes waste. Food waste, how ridiculous. Hungry people, and we're, we're throwing away all this food. So that was an example of how, as a, as a member, I can, you know, you can, you can influence regardless of where you sit in caucus, um, whether you're a minister or a backbencher. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's good. that's good. I was going to ask you about that. So, I mean, this was... I've heard it said a lot, actually, and it was said to me when I was thinking about this a long, yeah. long time ago, um, that, you know, getting into politics, you get into politics because you think you're going to change the world, right? yeah. which is what you said, and um, yet it's not like that. And, right. and you know, the bureaucracy and join uh, the party line and everything's controlled and constrained. And, yeah. You know, so you've obviously just shared with us there an example of, of a success that you've, you've had in that respect. If you think about your ability in, in previous roles, in particular the, the, the previous role where you were hands-on with the refuge, the difference that you made and that you felt you could make versus the difference you can make in politics and what you're feeling that you're making, mm. how does that compare and contrast? Is it Because I, I think... Well, I'm, I'm not wanting to answer the question for you, but I'm just giving you the context of the question. Personally, I would feel I would have felt at the time that if I get into politics, I'll be able to scale it up. I'll be able to make more of a difference and achieve more in mm. a in a shorter time frame by being where the policy is made. Yep. Is that the case, or is it frustrating? Yeah, it actually is the case. Um, I mean, obviously, it's still slower than. You know, when you're in an NGO and you want to fix something, you just write an article and you, you know, yell it, yell it out to people when things shift. Yeah, it's more systematic, um, and so it's a long game. You play the long game. So for me, it's kind of like incrementally. I have seen such a huge shift in the way that family violence is focused on in the last five years. Then than how it ever has been. And it's always been a problem and a wicked problem to solve. But, yeah, genuinely, it's, would I like it to be faster? Would it like? Would I like it to be solved? Of course, I'd like it to be solved. I'd like it um, done, thanks. I'd like this immense harm that happens to, you know, a third of our population to go. Um, you know, and we haven't even brushed on sexual violence and, and and the harm that that does, right? Um, but literally, I ended up where I needed to be at the time that I needed to be there. I don't know if that sounds a little bit woo-woo, but I got the opportunity to influence at a time where there was um, a team of people prepared to listen to my experience but also to build on that. And I'm not the only one in in, um, in my team as well. So um, my good friend, um, the Honourable Priyanka Radhakrishnan, uh, she worked at Shakti Ethnic Women's Refuge as well. Um, and so her and I have had lots of experience in this space. And there were other members like um, Portal Williams and Carmel Cipollone who all had worked in this sector. So it was a really tight network um, yeah I think 
I think I would have probably felt a little disheartened if we if we hadn't kept having these changes occurring every every budget money attached new policy attached new directions new corrections new you know the moving forward of this work um, we're in a good place mm. lots to do but a good place I'm not sure if I answered that question I think I no, started I think wan- I think wandering off there no no I think you did I think it's also again you, you're very good at giving me a nice segue into the next piece ah. <laughs> uh, lots to do and you mentioned the long game yeah so are you in politics for the long game Oh, it's a tough one, that. Um, I'm in it for more than this year, put it that way. Um, I do find it, I find it quite, um, at times, uh, quite uh, aggressive and violent. Um, Is like one of the things that um, has happened over the last probably couple of years is there has been a real change in how I feel about my personal safety and a lot of MPs talk about this so so you know I can be driving on our motorway or I can be driving on Hewlett's Road and people will wind down their window and yell and scream abuse at me I could be at the supermarket and people will just come up to me and bail me up and be really aggressive um I've had people drive towards me in their cars, those kinds of things. That takes a toll. Um, and so it's it's that balance, right? It's like I know that this will sound very trite, but I don't do this to get a benefit out of it. Like I'm, I'm doing genuinely want to serve my community. But at some point, if it gets worse, I will make the choice to walk away. Um and I'll go do something completely different. Mm-hmm. But literally it's, um, you know, p- people think they have the right to have a go at you, and that is not the case. I call out abuse where I see it. Um, people don't get a chance to speak to me like that. They want to have a decent and reasonable conversation. Sweet, let's do that. And I can be, I can understand that people might be passionate, but abusive, screaming out the window that I'm an Driving towards me in their vehicles, those kinds of things. That's yeah, crap. it's not acceptable, is it? I, I think this is one of the reasons why I, I, you know, I'm keen to have people like yourself on the show is to, uh, irrespective of your political persuasion, yeah. to realise that actually there are people who yeah. are in roles, who are in those roles because they're passionate about a, a subject about making a difference. Yeah. Whether you uh, agree with their perspective, agree yeah. with which party it is, or whatever. They're people Absolutely. trying to do a good job yeah. based on what they know and their mindset and their view of the world. And now you can disagree with yeah. your perspective, you can disagree with policy, but they're still people, aren't they? Yeah. And, and I think it's a valid point that you've raised. And I, I suppose from you know hearing about what happens overseas and in the UK where MPs yeah. have lost their lives, yeah. um, it's something that we in New Zealand, we, we never think would happen here. Yeah. Clearly, you're experiencing a bit of an escalation in that kind of thing. So we need to we need to take notice well, of you that. you know, and one of the things is I'm quite protected from it. Like when I'm by myself, it's different. But you know, um, we have a lot of systems to keep us safe. But you know, our staff uh, work in an environment that's incredibly abusive to them, 
and um, you know, I make no mistake, I um, I'm not okay with that happening. Mm. Um, I was in a workplace where someone was murdered in their workplace at ACC at the time, right. and so I know how things can turn um, very bad very quickly. But um, I guess the other part of it is my family as well. Uh, so my family never signed up for for this. They never signed up to be sitting with me somewhere and have someone bail me up and abuse me. They never signed up um, for the constant um, sense of having to kind of monitor my safety and watch. And I'm a relatively low-key MP. Like, a lot of people don't know I'm an, e an MP, and I, I'm quite happy about that. But, um, you know, it really upsets my husband. It really does. He's... He's like, I don't want you to do this anymore. Mind you, he did that as well when I was at refuge and, you know, I'd go out at night and pick up women and stuff. He'd be like, be safe, I'm coming with you. You know, and I'd be like, you can't come with me. They don't want to see you. <laughs> they want to see women. They don't want to see a man, you know. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that really, it is hard. It's a huge toll. And then, um, fortunately, my kids are older. Like, they're adults. So... That's the other thing, right? Um, if I had smaller kids and that kind of abuse was happening, I'd be very concerned. Um, I wouldn't want to put my children in that circumstance or situation. So, what's, what, what do you think the? I mean, this is maybe a silly question, but what do you think the answer is, Andrew? I mean, because I mean, we don't want good people leaving politics through fear. Yeah. That's not the kind of surely that's not the kind of society that we yeah. want. We want we want a, again, irrespective of which party you yeah. You, you, we want people representing different views, right? That's yeah. yeah, yeah. Otherwise we haven't got a democracy anymore. Absolutely. And so how how do we go about making people like yourself feel safer and actually are safer, not just feel safer, but yeah. actually are yeah. safer. Well, like I say, we've got um, some really good systems in place, um, and I won't go into them because no, you know, yeah. you know yeah. they, they are really some really good systems mm. in place to help support our safety personally and mm. and on precinct as well as in our offices, etc. But I think, I mean, the reality is this: when uh, when you're in an environment where it is, you know, people are braver on. They're braver as keyboard warriors than they are any other time. But then there's a percentage of people who are just literally, they, they don't care. They do not care um, where you sit. You're, you're a baddie because you're a politician. doesn't matter what your views are. You're a baddie because you're a politician. Um, those, those concerns are, that yeah, if you were a, if you were a mum of young kids, you wouldn't, or a dad of young kids, you wouldn't want to do this work. And I guess what it is is for New Zealand to grow up a little bit because we've had it pretty lucky for a long time. You know, I can be in the supermarket on my own shopping, <laughs> getting my, getting my toilet paper. You know, um, yeah. but we we just now have to have a different sense of safety um, because people. People think it's okay. And again, it comes back to beliefs and values and myths and disinformation, you know. People mm. people believe what they want to believe mm. and um, it's 
It's a shame, isn't it? System. I think it's one of the beautiful things about New Zealand is uh, the ability to reach out and be able to talk to people yeah. like, like yourself. Um, uh, you know, I, I, again, back to when I was thinking about it, I, I wanted to know what it was like yeah. to be a politician. So I reached out to a lot of politicians and yeah. spoke to a lot of politicians. Yeah. I couldn't have done that in the UK. Yeah. I never saw a politician in the UK the whole time I was there, but over here, I, you can bump into them in the supermarket. Well, you know, and long may it last, right? Yeah. Long may it last. I mean, we just have to be a bit more careful now. Um, I, like I say, I was it was pretty bad during the, um, the lockdown period and stuff. You know, it was pretty bad around that sort of um, mandate period. Uh, but most of the time it's pretty much okay. And like I say, even door knocking, you know, which is one of the things we do is, politicians even door knocking usually the, the rudest you'll get is someone say don't want to talk to you and firmly shut the door in your face most people are pretty good but yeah there is that element and I think um, we just need to be a bit more modern in our thinking around that stuff yeah so I'm conscious of the time oh and we are taking um, time out of your day which I appreciate I really do um but I do want, I did want to talk to you where I thought that question was going to go about right. lo longevity in politics uh, was, you know, towards what your legacy might be. So this, yeah. this podcast is about um, life, work and legacy. Whether you're in politics or let's assume yeah. that, yeah, that yeah. things come right and you, you, you are in politics. Oh, look, longer. definitely intending to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Way. Well, that's yeah. great. So let's, yeah. let's make that assumption. And so in, in politics and relative to the things that you're passionate about, what do you want to achieve in the in the future, and what do you think that you'd like your legacy to be? And that that's not to say that you've not already created one. It's yeah, just to yeah. say that you know, obviously, you're a young young politician, and there's oh, I like that. Yeah, I'm in my fifties. I like remember that. that fiver that you said you'd give me. Um, you know, so there's there's a long way to go yet for you, yeah. for you in your career. What would you like to achieve? And, and you know, if if, if you imagine. Zoom forward to a ripe old age, you're sitting on the porch. Yeah. Uh, and you're talking to grandkids or whoever about your life that's a story worth retelling. What do you want your legacy to be at that point in time? Oh, crikey. That's such a big question, isn't it? So the, uh, Huge. Should have started with that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I guess part of it is, so there are so many other facets to my life that we've not talked about here. So, so. Absolutely. One of the things is I want people to be able to um, to say that that woman, Angie Warren-Clark, she was instrumental in helping us change the tide of violence that happened in this country. The pieces of work that she did and the things that she did with her government, her friends, her whatever, her employer, whatever, been worthwhile. They've had purpose and meaning, and doesn't matter if it's a huge leap or a small leap, she made things better. So that's that's in that space. In the environmental and fishing space, which is another huge area of my life, uh, you know, I want to have that same sense of, you know, there were things that um, I've. I spoke about and fed into that actually enable our oceans to be cleaner and healthier and for our fishing to be a better, um, you know, for, for our fish stocks to grow, for, um, 
for our environment to thrive. There are those things. And then I guess I want, I, you know, I want my legacy to also be about I was a damn good parent and I was a kind friend and it wasn't just all about the things that I did outwardly. And, but actually, I was a decent, thoroughly decent person that no matter what, I made a difference to people who I cared and loved about. It literally, you know, I think about my daughter and raising her without violence and the fact that she is so not an activist. She doesn't need to be. She doesn't need to fight in the way that I did for the space around this, you know. So some of that stuff, really, really basic, really basic, like being a decent person, that's my legacy. I, I want people to go, you know what, didn't agree with her politics. Damn, she was nice. <laughs> she actually, she actually heard me and listened to me and we engaged and that was a good thing. Hmm. Great. Well, look, I can tell everyone that this is the first time I've met you and I think you're a very nice person. Oh, very good. Uh, <laughs> very easy to have a conversation with. And, um, and so I, I think really on that point, I'd like to thank you again for being here today, taking time out of your busy schedule. You've talked about how long your days are. Um, so I really do appreciate you uh, coming along and, and taking the time to talk to, to me, but also for, for sharing and being so open and transparent about your your past and your passion and the work that you do. Um, and the, the lessons that you've learned along the way and sharing that with me has made me Think about some things that have, uh, you know, that I've experienced in my past, and mm. I'll continue to think about those. So I'm grateful for that. So thank you. Look, thank you for um, having this conversation with me. I've really enjoyed it. I, I, I'm hoping I don't have any remorse about what I've said, <laughs> <laughs> or that my double chin got too big uh, in there. But look, um, it's been it's been wonderful. Thank you. I would recommend five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you. As you will hopefully know by now, if you've seen other episodes, this segment of the podcast is all about wisdom worth sharing. At the end of every interview, I'll look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out during the conversation and summarize them here. The title of this episode is The Long Game. Angie said that she was in politics for the long game, but she also was very clear that she's been in the long game of change when it comes to reducing or eradicating family violence. She has worked since being a teenager in this area and, in fact, made up her mind as a seven-year-old that she would stand up and fight against violence in the home. This was one life's work interview where the interviewee could literally talk about their life's work because that is what it was. Often we find ourselves going down a certain path later in life because of both conscious and unconscious connections and decisions that have influenced us along the way. For Angie, her whole life so far has been dedicated to making a difference in this area. And there's not many people who can say that about their choices, their decisions and their actions. Angie's speak for themselves. She has and continues to do real good work and make a difference in this area. I enjoyed this interview so much and clearly it was down to the interviewee. Angie is one of the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. She's absolutely passionate, enthusiastic 
and committed in a big way to the causes that are important to her. And there are several, including reducing family violence, the environment, and being a good parent for her children. It wasn't intentional, but the entire interview was on the subject of family violence, or domestic violence as it used to be called. Despite being so passionate due to her own experiences of family violence, both firsthand as a result of being beaten as a child, as well as in her work career being exposed to so many cases, she remains down-to-earth, articulate, and reasoned in her pursuit for settling for nothing less than significant change in New Zealand society. Something that can't be said for others trying to bring about change that they want to see, including other politicians. We need more Angies in the world. People who can talk, be passionate, forthright and to the point, but do so in a way that's conducive to not switching other people off. Angie talked about the choices men make. It's mainly men who commit family violence. There's no getting away from that. We need to own it. And when I say we, all men need to play a role. Those who commit violent acts are in the minority, thankfully. But if the majority remains silent and don't get involved, we're missing a great opportunity to positively influence those in our communities that still think that this is okay. What Angie said was that when we inflict violence, we are making a choice and we simply need to choose differently. I questioned this during the interview because to me it didn't seem that simple. When we know that we are creatures of our environment and we become like those that we hang around with, therefore we can, we can grow up with violence and it become, become a part of our DNA, epigenetics to call it. It could be ingrained so much so that there's no gap between stimulus and response. Something happens or something is said, and then bam, they lash out. A bit like when Angie's father saw her pulling a Remembrance Day poppy apart. It's because of this I questioned whether it was a choice or whether it was a reaction, learned behavior that's now become automatic. That's how our brains work as a way of saving energy. It learns something and then creates a neural pathway so we don't have to think about it. A bit like lifting a drink to our mouth. We don't think about it, we just do it. However, I was getting hung up on the mechanics of the brain function and not focused on the bigger picture at play. What Angie made me realize was that if we inflict violence, we witness the hurt and the damage we cause, and then don't do anything to change our neural pathway, that's the choice we're making right there. Choosing not to learn how to change the pathway. Angie's dad had inflicted violence on her as a child. She talked openly about that. She was hopeful that her father didn't mind her talking about this, and I'm hopeful too, because without being willing to share stories like that, nothing will ever change. Angie's father should be proud, and I'm sure he is, of Angie's work and her achievements, but also he should be proud of himself. He made the choice to change and did so. That takes guts to be open to criticism, admitting that you're wrong, and having fear about change, as we all do. He had to be vulnerable in order to make that change, and that takes effort. And it takes the support of people around you, and often of people that you may never have met yet. The key is, find the help and support you need. It's available. But you have to want to change badly enough to take the steps in the right direction. There's support out there for men who feel that they could harm loved ones, and if they want to contact anyone, 
Heiwakatapu on 0800-439-276. Or if you're a victim of family violence and you need help, you can call Shine on 0508-744-633. There are many organizations that can help. These are just two. But the main thing is you have to want to change and do something about it. Whichever the side of the issue that you're on, you're not alone. Get the help you need. The last point I want to make about Angie's interview is actually twofold. The first is, if we're not careful, we're at risk of becoming like other countries where violent actions towards politicians occurs frequently. Angie told us of how she's seen an increase in verbal abuse and even had vehicles driven at her. Now, we can't behave like this. We can't claim that we want freedom of speech and then take actions that lead to a reduction of democracy. If our politicians don't feel safe, they'll stand down and leave. There's not many of us that would want that job. We should be grateful for those that do. Yes, we should be able to express ourselves, but we need to make it about policy, not people. And I think that's all the more reason politics in our country needs to be about less about personalities and more about policy and the changes that we want and need to see for our society. It's a nice segue into my second point. I believe that politicians could and should be leading the way when it comes to acts of civility. The term opposition subconsciously leads to opposing parties pushing back on anything and everything. We need a parliament where politicians, no matter what side of the fence they sit, are more willing to work together on key issues that we all need to see change. Family violence is one of those, of course. Wouldn't it be nice if they were able to agree more, work together more, and actually bring about significant change? I saw a post online from Angie She'd wished Todd Muller all the best for the future after his decision to stand down at the next election. She said they had a good working relationship. And irrespective of our political persuasion, I think we all need to see more of that. Hopefully, you've been able to take many insights away from the interview um, that you can apply to some aspects of your own life, work and legacy. Use it, share it with others. As I always say, sharing is like teaching. Teaching helps us retain what we've learned and commit to change, which is necessary if we are to enhance our own life's work. I hope that you're happy, safe and successful in all that you do. And remember, live a life that's a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.